0: Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues of our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Georgine Rice. This week, we'll hear a biblical perspective on a distinctly Christian approach to Thanksgiving.
1: I will joy in the God of my salvation.
0: And at a time when everyone is just generically thankful, Albert Mola reminds us of the apologetic of Thanksgiving. How in the world can one actually call
2: an attitude that isn't directed in gratitude to another as Thanksgiving? The gift implies a giver. That's a basic Christian theological formula.
0: The gift implies a giver. And we'll be reminded of the original Thanksgiving story. We sail for the glory of God and the advancement of of the Christian faith. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, your host, and it's great to be with you on this Thanksgiving weekend. I'm coming to you from Portland in my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. The period of history we're living through is certainly giving us our fair share of trials. But, for every trial, really, for all of our trials, there is a flip side. Our trials and struggles give us an opportunity to renew and rekindle our faith and our trust in God, whether we faced blessings or trials first thessalonians five eighteen reminds us in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you Here's my colleague Bob Burney from w r f d The Word in Columbus, Ohio
1: in everything. Give thanks. If you have the opportunity to have the family together for Thanksgiving, praise God and thank Him. If you have just a handful, praise God and thank Him. If it's just you, or maybe you and your spouse, and that's it. Praise God and give thanks. The scriptural admonition is clear. In everything, give thanks. And you and I, those of us who know Christ and love his word have a greater opportunity to demonstrate to the world what a follower of Christ is like and how a follower of Jesus responds to adversity you see we don't respond like the rest of the world because we have the promises of God and we 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 believe in a sovereign god and we have all of the truth of scripture We are not supposed to respond like the world around us. Despair should not be a part of our vocabulary. Disappointment, of course. That's natural. That's human. Is it sin to be disappointed that things may not be the way they usually are or the way we want them to be? No, that's not sin. That's being human. But there's a world of difference between being disappointed and being in a state of despondency and despair and hopelessness. That is where we cannot go, should not go, not if we really do trust and believe that God is sovereign. And listen to this from Habakkuk chapter 3. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, Neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Now, let me stop there before I go to the next verse. That verse 17, Habakkuk 3, verse 17, what does that mean? It means every single aspect of of the Jewish economy and life and lifestyle. Listen to this. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, figs, huge part of their life, their economy, and their diet. Neither shall fruit be in the vines. Huge part of their diet and their economy. The labor of the olive shall fail. Huge part of their economy and their diet. And the fields shall yield no meat. That's the corn, that's the wheat, that's the barley. Again, a huge part of their economy and a huge part of their diet. And the flock should be cut off from the fold. That's all their meat. Huge part of their economy and a huge part of their diet. And there'd be no herd in the stalls. That's the cows. More meat, milk, etc. That one verse, verse 17, describes the absolute total collapse of the food system and the entire economy economy. It is hard to imagine anything worse. And yet the Word of God says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. In other words, the prophet there is saying, if everything falls apart, and I mean everything falls apart, verse 18, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Think about the implications of that. And my brother, my sister, apply it to your individual life, your family. Habakkuk says "If everything falls apart. Everything. It's like Job. Though he slay me,
0: yet will I serve him. A God-centeredness that makes all our temporal blessings small by comparison to the fact that we have Him. That perspective stands in stark contrast to the disposition held by so many today. We see a desire to be thankful and grateful in general, but a gratitude really directed to no one in particular. And even in that, our friend Albert Moeller sees an opportunity.
2: With a world becoming far more secular all the time around us, what is the meaning of Thanksgiving? What does the culture around us think of Thanksgiving? To whom are they thankful, and for what are they thankful? It's interesting to note that with the rise of organized forms of unbelief, agnosticism and atheism and secularism, you have open declarations that we ought to be thankful, but not, of course, thankful to God, whom they reject, but rather just thankful as some kind of attitude. But here's where Christians need to think very carefully. Thankfulness is not actually an attitude at all. Now, you may hear preachers talk about the platitude of an attitude of gratitude, but the reality is thankfulness according to biblical theology, according to Scripture, is not something that is basically, first of all, attitudinally. It is concrete. It is the relationship. It is the creature's understanding of absolute dependence upon the Creator. And the fact that we are dependent upon God, the God of the Bible, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for everything, for every good gift. The Bible tells us that he is the author of every good gift, that every good gift comes from God. And we're also told that that begins with the gift of our existence. It begins with the gift of every breath that we take. It begins with the gift of life. It begins with, of course, the gift of a God who not only created us, but speaks to us, of a God who made us in his image, of a God who redeems us. By the blood of the Lamb. Our thanksgiving as Christians is based upon the very clear declarations common to Israel in the Old Testament, of an obligation to thankfulness, and of a course even worship that was centered in thankfulness. Just think of the Psalms. Think of one of the briefest but most famous of the Psalms, the one hundredth Psalm. As we hear in this Psalm, it is an instruction to giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him, bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Now, in just those five verses of this one psalm, the 100th psalm, you have an entire theology of gratitude. Let's look at it. Our Christian worldview based upon scripture, has to be a worldview of thankfulness, a worldview of gratitude. But what does that look like? Well, the psalmist begins by praising God, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. This is about worshipers who are gathering together. The implication here is the temple, but of course, that is also to the cosmos as itself, a temple of God's glory. We are the inhabitants of the habitation that he has made for his glory, a temple, which is the entire created order, the cosmos. As we worship God, we are then told to serve the Lord with gladness. There is an eagerness here. We are to come into his presence with singing. There is celebration. But then there is the declaration of God's identity in verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. Now, what does that mean? Is it just a declaration? We know who he is? The Lord God of Israel is God? No, it means he is God. That means he is the beginning and the end. That means that he is the author of everything. That means that there isn't an atom or molecule in existence that cannot and must not trace its existence to the fact that he is God. It means that he is indeed the sovereign over all the cosmos that he has made. But then, of course, this is speaking of humans, where the psalmist says, it is he who made us and we are his. Just think about that. God made us, we belong to him, and of course he made us in his image. We are his people, in the next phrase, and the sheep of his pasture. So it gets very personal. We're not just those objects that he made, we are subjects that he made. He made us in his image, and he has a relationship with us. He has made us in order to know him, in order to worship him, in order to serve him, and to obey him. We are his people, but pastorally we're described as the sheep of his pasture. So what are we looking at here? Well, in the secular confusion of our age, there are people who know they're supposed to be thankful. But the problem is that in a fallen world, apart from Christ, we honor someone other than God as God. And we give thanks to someone or somebody or some force or something other than God. So one of the issues I want to make is to argue that thanksgiving is actually a powerful christian apologetic we need to say to the world around us it is absolutely right to celebrate thanksgiving not by the way just on a national holiday one day we set apart with a diet of turkey and all the other things rather thanksgiving is to be understood as something that is to be the disposition of our hearts but that raises the question to whom are we thankful and that raises another issue How in the world can one actually call an attitude that isn't directed in gratitude to another as thanksgiving? The gift implies a giver. And thus, if you say, I'm going to celebrate the gift, but there was no giver, then guess what? It really wasn't a gift. It's just a this, or it's just a that. And all, if we follow this worldview, all Thanksgiving means is some kind of orchestrated mood or attitude we try to conjure up among various this is and that's about various this is and that's. That's all there is to it. But here's the apologetic point. It's the spiritual diagnosis. Human beings actually have a yearning to be thankful to a who. Who? This gets to a second level of Christian apologetics, and that is the opportunity to tell people to whom we are thankful and why. We're thankful that God has made us, that he made this world, that God made us in his image. We're thankful that God has given us such good gifts. He's the giver of every good gift. We are thankful for the honor of knowing him in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we're thankful for the salvation that he has accomplished for us. We're thankful for our adoption in Christ as his joint heirs. We are thankful for the fact that we are made for glory and made for eternity. We're thankful for the opportunity to know Him. And that means the opportunity and the mandate, not only as we have seen in the 100th Psalm, but as we see in the very first chapter of Romans, to honor God and to give thanks to Him.
0: Coming up, the real
2: story of Thanksgiving. We sail for the glory of God and the advancement of the
3: Christian
0: faith. The Christian Outlook returns in a moment.
4: The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at Pepperdine.edu slash SPP. That's Pepperdine.edu slash SPP.
2: And Thanksgiving Day for the rest of my life. Welcome
0: back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Thanksgiving really shouldn't be a controversial holiday, but like so much else in our nation and culture today, it is. Well, some want to recast it as a day to live a zen-like peace and tranquility with a sort of undirected gratitude. Well, others have tried to flip the script, so to speak. On Thanksgiving, we're giving thanks to Native American peoples, Well, the real story and the real holiday is so much better. Stephen Mansfield is a prolific author of some 20 plus books. He joined John Hall and Kathy Emmons from Word FM in Pittsburgh.
5: Stephen, I read an article in the New York Times on why Thanksgiving should be abolished. And as you can imagine, it was a real pick me up it was all the reasons why we should completely, you know, put this holiday behind us, everything from how horrible Christopher Columbus was to how, you know, we've marginalized native americans, to how we are eating bad food, to everything about it. so i guess the reason i'm so excited about this conversation is i want to get back to the heart of what really happened, not something that's just going to make me feel good or something's going to make me feel bad, but maybe just what the real story is.
3: Well, it's so interesting that people are attacking Thanksgiving and the original Thanksgiving story because it's such a sweet, innocent, faith-filled kind of experience, kind of an episode in our history, and you wouldn't think people would go at it. But I guess because they associate it with abusive Native Americans and uh, other supposed myths. Uh, that they just are you know, launching an attack against. It really is interesting to see all the articles coming out this year. It surely is. Okay, so, Stephen, then go back to the
6: very beginning, because those pilgrims, those brave men and women who came across the Atlantic in the cold and in the dark and in the fear, they were suffering religious persecution.
3: They were really true persecution, weren't they? they were. They absolutely were. Uh, They were separatists. They did not believe the Church of England was pure enough. Puritans would have stayed and tried to purify it. Separatists just couldn't stay. And so they were harried, as they used to say, harried out of England uh, from their town of of Scrooby in North England. And they ended up living in Holland for 12 years. Very, very difficult, very hard physical labor. They tended to lose their children to the immoral society. And so finally, in 1620, they decided to sail to the New World. Now, it's important to know why. We read their journal articles, we read their prayers, and they said they wanted to be a stepping stone of the light of Christ to the natives in that part of the world. In other words, they weren't just running from persecution. They had a positive vision to be a stepping stone of the light of Christ in the New World and reach the natives of that land. So this was a lot of the reason they sailed. Well, the, the, we we all probably have heard the basics of the story. They sailed in 1620, 66 days across the North Atlantic in water so cold that the U.S. Navy says that you'll die if you're just in it for three minutes. That's how cold that water was. Terrible storms, terrible beating of the ship. It was just miserable. And the sailors on that ship who, who weren't part of the pilgrims and weren't part of the religious community called them psalm singing puke stockings because those are the two things they spent most of their time doing, uh, singing psalms and throwing up. Oh, my gosh. Uh, okay, so
6: those men and women, uh, because the trip was so arduous, several of them or more died on the journey just before they even hit American soil, right?
3: One died just about the time they hit American soil, and uh, it was it was pretty miserable. Now, now that's just among the pilgrims. There was another one who died, who was one of the sailors. In fact, he was the one who most called the pilgrim psalm singing puke stockings. So he passed away on the on the ship as well. But among the pilgrims, only one died before they actually uh, set ashore. I see. Okay, so Stephen, what I'm really uh, sort of
6: always curious about was they, they landed, you know, in in Plymouth, but they came in November. How could they be so far off? Why didn't they come in the springtime when they had time to settle down?
3: Well, they tried to to get there earlier, but they had a number of business dealings that got complex. Uh, They set sail initially on two ships, one called the Speedwell and, of course, the Mayflower. Uh, After they got just a few miles off the shore of England, the Speedwell began to take on water. So they had to turn around and go back. Some people saw this as a sign of God's not favoring that that particular voyage, so they they gave up. Others piled on to the Mayflower, so that by the time they got everything straightened out, their business dealings, their leaky ship, other problems, they ended up sailing way too late. And this, of course, contributed to a great deal of suffering once they got there.
5: Okay, so talk about those early days. What did they see when they arrived? What were the conditions like?
3: Well, they would have seen that empty shore if you've been on Cape Cod, you know it's a it's a big open, wide beach. They wouldn't have seen much. They had they sailed around uh, trying to find some place that was good to land. When they finally did go to land, they began to notice way back uh, away from the shore uh, the trees, the forest, and they did see natives looking at them, but they never got them got close enough or were able to talk to them or called them out. And then finally, as they started building their own, you know, huts and their own to, to, to try to survive, began building something of a village. This is one of the great stories that people don't talk about in school. Uh, a great big Indian, about six three, six four in height, strode out of the woods and in almost perfect English said, do you have a beer? Now, they're not teaching that in school, but I'll tell you that is the truth. And the reason is this Indian was named Samoset. He had sailed around with uh, english sea captains before learned the english language he had probably even sailed to england and back um and he was trying to greet the pilgrims with something cheery and happy and friendly and uh, obviously he knew that english people were drinkers of beer this was at a time when they wouldn't have consumed uh, water because they, they believed that water was tainted any kind of natural water was tainted so he said do you have a beer and this started the relationships between those english pilgrims and the indians Oh, now,
5: wait, I'm, parenthetically, are you saying that should be the official Thanksgiving greeting? <laughs> Do you
2: have
3: a beer. <laughs> it probably should. It probably should. But it indicates that uh, I, I frankly see this as part of the providence of God. Imagine sailing, you know, one third or, or more the way oh, around yeah. the world, landing in a strange land and having somebody walk out who knows your language and oh, they're, not, they're not native to your land. I think that's the providence of God.
6: That truly is. Okay. So speaking of God's providence, can you talk for a second about the the Mayflower Compact? Because obviously these were men and women who had a deep and abiding faith and they came here to serve the Lord, but they also, you know, before they left the ship, I understand there was a bit of, you know, bad feelings between people about how they were going to move forward. What about leadership? So the Mayflower Compact in many ways sort of set the tone about government as they started to land.
3: Exactly. They, because of the storms that they had sailed through across the ocean, they were 500 miles off course. Uh, They were supposed to land in the realms then known as Northern Virginia, which would have gone all the way up into Delaware, uh, but they were much further north than that. So before they went ashore, they were, some of them were concerned that they weren't governed by the charter that they had been issued before they sailed. In other words, the governing documents they had didn't apply and since they weren't all christians they weren't all pilgrims other there were there were what they called strangers among them meaning people not of their faith or of no faith they were concerned that when they went to ashore they wouldn't have any governing documents so they drew up on the Mayflower before they permanently went ashore, uh, a thing that has come to be known as the Mayflower Compact. And it's very, a very important document in history. Looking back, it's one of the really kind of an antecedent of our own constitution, although the pilgrims, of course, would not have thought that way. But it, it literally contains the sentence, we sailed for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Well, you can understand why maybe some people want to abolish the memory of that document because it's a very strong statement. We sail for the glory of God and the advancement. Of the Christian faith. And then they went on to say that they bound themselves together. They called it a civil body politic, meaning we are governed by certain laws. We are Englishmen, and we have bound ourselves together in a covenant of governance. Well, this, of course, is exactly what a constitution is. So those who look back over our legal history, our constitutional history in America, we obviously look back to the Mayflower Compact, which not only states the reason that these people sailed very strongly, but also is, of course, the first compact, the first covenant that would have been a governing compact of Englishmen on these shores.
0: Coming up, our relationship with Native Americans.
3: In fact, the Pilgrims wrote that Squanto was a real token of God's grace in their lives. The, the Indians taught them how to harvest the sea, taught them how to plant in that unique environment.
0: More with Stephen Mansfield when The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. When we turn the clock back all the way to 1620 and look at the Thanksgiving meal that laid the groundwork for the holiday we celebrated this week, we're met with the issue of the forefathers' relationship with Native Americans— We shouldn't try to whitewash the history of our predecessors' treatment of indigenous peoples here in the North American continent, but neither should we give in to contemporary caricatures of those relationships. Let's return for a few more minutes with Stephen Mansfield, with John Hall and Kathy Emmons talk
5: about the relationship between the pilgrims and the Native Americans. It seems like, as I said, there are not just the New York Times article I read, but a ton of articles right now about how this is why Thanksgiving should be put behind us, is that the white man's behavior to the Native American is so wretched that the holiday should be scrapped.
3: Well, this is one of the sillier things I've heard historians say. The fact is that when the pilgrims first arrived, those from the Mayflower that the natives, Samuel Seton and then his friend Squanto, who is so famous especially among school children, were very fast friends. And in fact the pilgrims wrote that Squanto was a real token of God's grace in their lives. The the Indians taught them how to harvest the sea, taught them how to plant in that unique environment, taught them how to survive the winter. I mean, half of them would eventually starve in the starving time, partially because they'd arrived so late with such poor provisions. But the natives are responsible, they said, the pilgrims said themselves, for keeping so many alive. What historians point to is that later, decades and decades later, there was a war. In 1675, notice that that's 54 years after the Thanksgiving that we're talking about. Uh, There was a thing called King Philip's War between whites and Indians.
5: Interesting, but that was 54 years later.
3: Exactly, and so they point okay. to that war, and then, of course, they say, well, the whites and the natives didn't get along, but that is not the way it was initially. And by the way, by 1675, most of those who had sailed on the Mayflower had died. So, in other words, that initial generation had a wonderful relationship with the natives and tri- uh, attributed them as tokens of God's grace. It wasn't until almost 54 years later that a war broke out, and that was over— Other issues, different issues and amongst the different people. So I think it's a a little bit unfair to to blame the the founding generation for what took place almost a half a century later.
5: So the angst, Stephen, between the white man and the Native American um, developed over time?
3: It did develop over time, and it, and it had to do with all the things that you can imagine. It had to do with land and territory and alliances with other Indians. The Indians in the area, all the tribes certainly saw the Pilgrims as superior. I don't mean racially, obviously, but I mean in terms of technology and in terms of their guns, their weapons, their, their science, etc. And so there became great questions and contests and tensions over who are they allied with and who, who's closer to the Pilgrims. And if a certain tribe gets closer to them, will uh, other Natives will attack them. And Eventually, of course, this all launched into a huge war, as I say, King Philip's War. King Philip was a, was the English name of an Indian chief uh, in 1675. So. Uh, that war was quite bloody. And, and uh, yes, there were decapitations. And yes, there were dismemberments. And yes, it was horrible, as war often is. But all that had very little to do with the founding generation, the generation that came over on the Mayflower. And I, I think it's a shame that any of that should be allowed to you know, remove us from the beauty of this sweet story and this episode in our history.
6: Yes. Okay. So then, Stephen, this corrective history that we're undergoing now, where Native Americans have been celebrating the National Day of Mourning, or we look at, you know, the New York Times um, work, 1619. So different people have different stories of their immersion into American life and culture. But it's important to know this beginning sort of story of who we are as people, because there's pushback now, and it may be in danger of disappearing. It
3: absolutely is in danger of disappearing and I I strongly recommend that those listening to us right now do on their Thanksgiving day what they often did in New England, and many of them still do. To remember that starving time at Plymouth, when there were only five kernels of corn, many in New England observed the tradition of putting five kernels of corn on each plate at the Thanksgiving dinner table just before the food was served. Mm -hmm. And that then was a moment of prayer and reflection, remembering the starving time, remembering the pilgrims and others who had suffered for this country and suffered for the faith in this land. And I want to say quickly, I don't at all take lightly the fact that there was a kind of a Holocaust ultimately visited on Native Americans in, in this country. There's no question there were betrayals. There's no question there was slaughter. There's yes. no question there was unrighteousness. And in a sense, this did begin with Columbus and did sort of begin with the pilgrims. Now, I say that it began, you know, people point at Columbus and say, well, look, he, he brought diseases to the Indians uh, where, in the islands he visited. Well, this was long before we understood about microorganisms or diseases. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't bring a Holocaust on purpose. And the pilgrims, as we've already observed, intended to come and be a stepping stone of the light of Christ to the Natives in this part of the world. So there's no question there's a Holocaust that happened with Native Americans, but to lay that on the pilgrims, to lay that even on Columbus is a little silly. They simply were exploring. They simply were trying to do good. They couldn't have known about diseases and the the founding generation of pilgrims couldn't be responsible for that later war, almost a half a century later. So I I think we can honor the Native American sacrifices and redress those grievances without necessarily having to diminish this beautiful, powerful story of faith at our founding.
0: Coming up, setting the story of our nation's founding straight.
3: Some started questioning
7: the commitment of American founders to Christian orthodoxy.
0: When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us.
4: The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at pepperdine.edu slash SPP. That's pepperdine.edu slash SPP.
0: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The tendency to distort or recast the origins of the Thanksgiving holiday is really one part of a larger picture. What is the true role of Christian faith in our nation's founding? Well, depending on who you listen to, you may be led to believe they were almost all deists, or conversely, they were all Bible-believing Christians. Mark David Hall of George Fox University set out to answer that question in his book, Did America Have a Christian Founding?, separating modern myth from historical truth. He's a good source to turn to in order to set the record straight. Mark David Hall was a guest on my program. In the introduction, you write, scholars and popular authors routinely assert that America's founders were deists who desired the strict separation of church and state. Let's begin with the question, why is it important in the 21st century for us to explore this question and to understand it in its historic context?
7: Yeah, that's a great question. I think to begin with, it's important just to have history right. We want an accurate account of history for its own sake as well. I I think James Wilson pointed out as a Supreme Court justice in the 1790s that good regimes sort of naturally pull people back to the first principles upon which the regimes were founded. So I think it's important to um, reflect on these principles and to try to remain faithful to this wonderful constitutional order that was bequeathed to us. As well, the U.S. Supreme Court has made it crystal clear that we, the U.S. Supreme Court justices, must interpret the First Amendment in light of its generating history. And so the answer to these questions has has very Mm -hmm. important implications for law and public policy.
0: The notion that America had a Christian founding has become uh, controversial. Why is this question controversial today? And when did that controversy, if you will, begin?
7: I think it began in the 19th century where some um, authors, not too many, but some started questioning the commitment of American founders to Christian orthodoxy. And uh, then probably more prevalent in the 19th century, a number of popular authors asserted, maybe a little bit too strongly, that no, 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 all of the founders were wonderful, pious Christian men. the debate really took off in the 20th century where the academy really became populated by progressive secularists. And I think if they look back to the American founding – Um, they were looking for a usable past, and they wanted to sort of help free America from its past ties to religion, and they they wanted a wall of separation uh, between church and state. And so my main concern in this book, I I begin each chapter with, you know, maybe 20 quotations of scholars, important scholars, in peer-reviewed books, saying things like most of America's founders were deists, or America's founders wanted a wall of separation between church and state. So this is a very pervasive set of myths. And I'd like to think in the five chapters or so of the book that I utterly demolish these myths and then argue affirmatively that Christianity had a very important impact on America's founders.
0: Well, let's begin with the subject you cover in the first chapter. I don't want to assume that all of our listeners understand what it means when it has uh, said that the founders were deists and why that is contrary to a Christian foundation of this constitutional republic. Can you explain what that means and why it, first of all, is wrong, but why it's troubling?
7: Sure. So deism is a movement that comes about with the Enlightenment, and basically it's a rationalist approach to religion. So deists tend to reject things that they feel and doesn't square with reason. So things such as the Trinity or the Incarnation or the Atonement or the Virgin Birth, these things aren't reasonable in the light of deists, and so they reject them. Now, they're willing to agree that reason teaches us that there's some sort of creator God but this God, it is oftentimes held, just simply created the world and then steps away from it. So God does not intervene in the affairs of men and nations. And What's utterly uh, astonishing in my mind is you have prominent scholar after prominent scholar, including a number of Christian college professors, writing things like most of America's founders were deists. And what I do in that chapter is I go through the sort of evidence they present to make their case. I carefully define deism. And by the end of the chapter, I argue that maybe there's three deists among America's civic founders in that era. And three, not many. And you you can make a good case that we should count maybe 800 or so men and a few women as founders. And yet we have clear evidence that one, two, or maybe three of them are deists. So it's just astonishing that people routinely make these unsupportable claims.
0: What constitutes America's founding? Because there seems to be some disagreement even on that point.
7: Sure. So I, I lay out three possibilities. One would be America's earliest colonial settlements. that is the first settlement in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. And if that's what we mean by founding, then I think indisputably um, we had a Christian founding. here to New England, almost no one would argue with me about that. So I focus more on the Mid-Atlantic colonies, such as Pennsylvania, and the southern colonies, such as Virginia. And I make it clear that even in these colonies, people were profoundly concerned with the things of God. Another possibility would be the war for American independence. One could argue that these early colonies were a part of the British Empire, after all. And it's only with independence that these colonies break from Great Britain and become independent. And so I spent some time exploring that, and I I contend that America's war for independence was both biblical and just. But one could argue that the only thing that resulted from that war was 13 independent states. And so another argument would be really America came into being. America was founded— with the U.S. Constitution, and so I spent some time here. Now, the argument of the other side, of course, is that God isn't really referenced in the Constitution, not to get to the dateline in the year of our Lord, 1787, but I wouldn't want to put too much weight on that. What I argue instead is that we can point to a number of very specific ways in which American founders were profoundly influenced by Christian ideas, And so therefore, even though God isn't referenced much in the Constitution, I think it's fair to say that even if we look to the creation of our constitutional order, that America still had a Christian founding because of its Christian influence.
0: Now, Dr. Hall, let me ask you about our government. It is considered secular, but that is not the same as godless. Now, you devote a chapter to that subject. What does it mean that the founders respected religion? Uh, They established a secular government, but the Constitution is not godless. Yeah, you know, I'm not
7: sure I like the label of a secular government. I I think the founders clearly saw the church and the state as separate institutions, an argument that could be traced back to the words of Jesus, right, given to Caesar Mm what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. They were clearly influenced by their Christian convictions when they created our constitutional order. They clearly thought it was appropriate to include religion in public debates for presidents to issue calls for prayer and fasting and that sort of thing. At the state level, sometimes the legislatures clearly appeal to religious convictions or biblical convictions when passing legislation. One of my favorite examples of this is Pennsylvania, when it passed an act of abolish slavery. And I'm paraphrasing here, but I quote the document in my, um, in my book. Basically, the legislature says recognizing gift, that liberty is a gift from God. And that we cannot deny this gift to our fellow creatures created in God's image. We hereby abolish slavery. Um, That's a paraphrase. But again, you can read the document. And so, you know, according to people from the Freedom from Religion Foundation or the American Human Association, all of those things I just mentioned would be inappropriate. uh, But the founders had no conception of that. They did not have this bright line dividing their religious convictions from their role as civic leaders or officials.
0: Coming up. Back to Thanksgiving.
7: President Washington, he didn't have to issue a call for a Thanksgiving Day proclamation if he didn't want to, but he did.
0: The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we think about the role of Christian faith in our nation's founding and the role of faith in the public workings of the nation, we return once again to Thanksgiving. Maybe we could call Thanksgiving Exhibit A the founder's intended relationship between church and state. Let's return for a few more minutes of my conversation with Mark David Hall, author of Did America Have a Christian Founding? Let's talk about this notion of the separation of church and state, a a phrase that was used in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson. Was there a debate about the, in quotes, separation between church and state? And how is that relevant for interpreting the First Amendment?
7: Yeah, certainly there are all sorts of issues that came up with respect to how church and state might be related. Again, I think any Christian in his or her right mind supports a form of church-state separation. We don't want the government telling churches how they should run themselves in terms of ecclesiastical governance. Um, The issues tend to come down with respect to things like, is it permissible for a president to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation, a proclamation that says, Everyone should go to his or her house of worship and give thanks to God if he or she wants to, right? So it's a very non-coercive sort of thing. And if we look at the debates in the era surrounding that, I, I, I tell a story in my book involving the first federal Congress, the very Congress that drafted the First Amendment. Elias um, Boudinot, later president of the American Bible Society, said, hey, we should ask George Washington to issue a call for um, a Thanksgiving Day Proclamation. There were a few people who objected. Adonais Burke and Thomas Tucker said, oh no, we can't do that, that's European practice. But Roger Sherman, the old Puritan from Connecticut, said, no, 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 it's okay, it's a biblical practice. It's something worthy of Christian imitation. Well, the House agreed with Boudinot and Sherman, the Senate agreed with the House, and President Washington, he didn't have to issue a call for a Thanksgiving Day Proclamation if he didn't want to. But he did. And I would encourage all your listeners just to Google this George Washington, Thanksgiving Day Proclamation, Mm -hmm. 1789. It will come up right away. It is beautiful.
0: Are you hopeful that in better understanding America's Christian founding, that we will be faithful to that Christian founding or at least return to it?
7: I am hopeful about that. Now, the sort of most extreme progressive living Constitution types, I think there's no hope for them. Uh, They just say the founders' views don't matter. I think for conservatives, we sort of naturally get that the founders' views matter. I think my book has the possibility of reaching into the middle. People who kind of like the rule of law, who don't think judges should make things up willy-nilly, who want to have an accurate account of America's history. So I think if they would read this book, they would come away with a much greater understanding of Christianity's role in the founding what the founders intended with respect to um, church-state relations, and especially, we haven't talked much about religious liberty, but the founders were profoundly committed to religious liberty for all Americans, not just for Christians, for Jews and Muslims and others. And I think that's an important um, tale that we have to tell today in this day and age where religious liberty is under such assault.
0: I hope and trust your Thanksgiving weekend has been blessed. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and Google Play. And never miss these and other great conversations. Thank you for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.
4: She ran away in a sleep
0: National Wreaths Across America Day is Saturday, December 17th. Join the mission to remember our fallen heroes, honor those who currently serve and their families, and teach younger generations the value of freedom. A $15 donation to Wreaths Across America sponsors a fresh handmade balsam fur wreath from Maine with a single red bow. Visit wreathsacrossamerica.org to learn how to support a local participating program or sponsor a veteran's wreath. wreathsacrossamerica.org.